Let's begin with prayer. This morning, before we climb into your word and consider the meal, specific meal that you have for us, there's a few things that we would like to lift up and put in front of you corporately. One, first of all, this horrible storm that hit the Philippines. Lord, I want to pray along with other churches this morning, hopefully that are lifting up these very things. I want to pray for those families that have been displaced and those um, parents that are looking for children or children that are looking for parents. I want to pray for those, those families that are trying to figure out how they eat and survive pray for those relief efforts that are taking place and for the delivery of food and water, shelter. Lord, I want to pray for believers that are there right now that are having the opportunity to offer water and food and shelter and something even better that the folks in the Philippines need really even more than food or water is the good, good news of Jesus. Lord, we pray that whatever way we are to come alongside as a church, whether it's individually or as families or corporately, Lord, we pray that you would show us how we are to step out in that. Lord, we're thankful that you own the cattle on a thousand hills and that you can provide for these needs in the Philippines. We know the storm didn't happen without your permission. So we look for your glory in it. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for first the pastor of this church, Paul Blue, and for his family. I want to pray for his, his marriage, Lord, that his marriage will be something that puts the gospel on display to his family, that his kids will know what the gospel looks like because they see mom and dad raging after it. They see dad as much as humanly possible trying to be Christ in, in the home and that they see their mom following their dad as hopefully the church follows and enjoys Christ. Lord, I pray for Paul and for his ministry. Lord, I pray that it would be fueled by worship. I just know how easy, how easy it is to just mail one in, and before long you find that you've mailed two in, and before long you find that you're just doing a J-O-B. And Lord, I pray that you would quicken him week by week to the gravity of what he is equipping your people to do with family fellowship, that he's equipping your people to be. And Lord, I pray that you would renew him week by week. I pray too that he would be surrounded by men that can speak honestly and truly and accurately and surgically into his life, that he's accountable. And Lord, I pray that he is not doing, leading that ministry there by himself, but that you are surrounding him with a plurality of leadership. Lord, this morning, too, as a church, we want to lift up one of our families that has a little wee one born this last week, little Amelia, who's going to have a challenging next few weeks and months going through multiple surgical procedures. I 
Lord, we pray with Derek and Casey, and we know that too, just like a storm in the Philippines, that what's going on with Amelia's heart is no accident. You weren't snoozing. We confess that. We know that. We even enjoy that. But Lord, we ask you to watch over this little tiny baby girl. We ask you for, for care, wisdom, expertise to be brought to bear in these surgical procedures, in this treatment, in the dosage of every single medicine. And Lord, as we pray for those, we pray for those as means, knowing that you are the Lord over those means, and we give you the glory. And we ask you first and foremost for your involvement in every way and what's going to unfold in these next few days, especially Wednesday as little Amelia has surgery. I pray for Derek and Casey. We pray for Derek and Casey and lift up our brother and sister. We pray for peace. A peace that has a deep and abiding trust in you with their most cherished little thing, a little girl. Lord, I pray that you will speak loud, loudly, clearly through this situation to those lives that are coming in contact with this situation. We love you, Lord. We are thankful that you are a good shepherd, that you pay attention to your people, that you're involved and engaged, and you have a special care for those with young. We turn this time over to you, Lord, thankful in advance for how we spent the last few minutes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The sermon this morning is part of our all series, a series of sermons that have taken place over the course of the summer. There's a few more left in the all series, and in fact, they're gonna overlap into December, into Advent. This message this morning is on the might of God's word. I'll share with you something I read this week. This was actually forwarded to me by a friend, a member of our church that is, um, he forwarded this to me and was really just shocked by what he read. And I was so glad he sent it to me because I thought it very timely to see this. I didn't see it in any of the major networks. North Korea's Kim Jong-un I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but we'll give that a shot. We'll say it with confidence. Had 80 people publicly executed on November 3rd. This is his first known public execution since he took, his, took power after his father's death. Here's the account from the newspaper there, translated, obviously. According to witnesses of the execution, the source said... Wonsan, this is where this took place, or one of the places that it took place. It took place in a number of cities, apparently. Wonsan authorities gathered some 10,000 people, including children, at Shinpung Stadium, which has a capacity of 30,000 people, and forced them to watch. I heard from the residents that they watched in terror as their corpses were riddled with machine gun fire that they were hard to identify afterwards. The Wonsan victims were mostly charged with watching or illegally trafficking South Korean videos. Any of that 
material in North Korea is considered pornography. Whether it is or not, a pirated movie or anything like that is going to be considered pornography. They're charged with watching or illegally trafficking South Korean videos for being involved in prostitution or being in possession of one of these. Just having it. Publicly executed for having what you have in your lap right now and what I have in my hand in North Korea. Any family members or accomplices were shipped off to prison camps. So you related to someone that had a Bible. If you weren't executed, shipped off to a prison camp. I thought about the timeliness of that news as we considered today as a church family awe of something that just seems so normal, so available, so accessible that there are people in another land that are being publicly executed just for having one. I thought hopefully this morning it would set the tone for us today as we together endeavor to be renewed with awe in this book that we hold, that we carry, that we read. That together we'll see it as so much more than a book. The message this morning really has two parts. The first part, I want to just consider a few excerpts. I'd like for you to read along with me or follow along with me. A few excerpts. You can turn to Genesis 1. As you're turning there, I'll give you sort of a map for the morning. The first part of this message this morning is going to look at God's words or God's word that records his words. And the second part of the message is going to deal with God's word as determining the future. God's word as determining the future. But first, let's consider God's word as recording God's word. I'm going to read some excerpts going through passages in our Bible, and you're welcome to follow along. If you're more of a listener, then I welcome you and encourage you. Just sit back and listen to these passages and listen to the theme of what's taking place here in passage after passage, and really, in some cases, the high watermarks of our entire Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. In verse 6, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. In verse 9, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. In verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so. 
Verse 14, God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Verse 20, God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God blessed them in verse 22, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters of the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it, the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. God is saying and calling and blessing and speaking. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Passage after passage in the high water marks of our Bible where God speaks. Turn over just a couple of pages to Genesis chapter 15. Beginning in verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. He said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Passage after passage where God is speaking and how we can just read right on past it. We can just take in the details and take in the story and forget about the fact that we're reading a book a book that people died for this week just for having it that has passage after passage telling us what God said. Think about that just for a minute. Just let that sink in. Passage after passage telling us what God said. Turn to Exodus chapter 3. Beginning in verse 3, and Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians 
nations and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. High water marks, God speaking. Turn to Exodus 20. This is an especially noteworthy occasion where God is speaking a little background before I start reading in chapter 20. Let me give you a little setting. Chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, my, uh, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. Let's see what he said in the hearing of all the nation of Israel, beginning in chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Verse 13, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not cover your neighbor, covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that's your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. Wednesday nights, we've been working through different books in the Bible. And just this last Wednesday, actually the Wednesday before that, we finished up the book of Job. If you were there for those couple of Wednesday nights in a row where we worked through the book of Job, you know how the story goes. There's this interaction between God and Satan in these first couple of chapters. And then there are many, many, many chapters where Job is speaking and Job is praying and Job is, Job is lamenting and mourning. Job's 
friends that aren't so great are weighing in with their thoughts. And then in chapter 38, here's where God speaks. And it's a pregnant moment. And it's a moment that's been waiting to happen. And here's how it unfolds. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, big boy. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Man, high watermarks, one right after another. Awesome pregnant moments where God is speaking. 1 Samuel chapter 3, now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And in verse 4, the Lord called to Samuel and he said, here I am, and he runs to go see Eli. Eli says, no, that's not me. I didn't call for you. In verse 6, the Lord called again Samuel, and Samuel went to Eli. Eli, what do you want? And in verse 8, the Lord called to Samuel again the third time. And then in verse 10, the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Passage after passage after passage, these awesome moments where someone is speaking. God is speaking and we are listening. His people are hearing his words and they are profound moments. If we're just considering God spoke here. One of my favorite accounts is the account of Elijah. He's done some pretty amazing things. He's gone head to head with the prophets of Baal. But then for some reason, Elijah gets really scared of Jezebel. In 1 Kings 19, it says this, there he, Then he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rock before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earth, earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of a cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He says, you're not the last one standing. I've got 7,000 who've not bent the knee, my friend. 14,000 knees that have never touched the ground for Baal. God spoke in a whisper and a profound moment. Who can forget the baptism settings or the mountain of transfiguration settings where God speaks from heaven? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, he said at the baptism. At the transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he goes on to say, listen to him. Profound moments when God spoke from heaven. Here's another one in John 12. 
Jesus has entered the final days before he goes to the cross. He says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I've glorified you in the incarnation, my son, and I will glorify it again in your cross and resurrection. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said, An angel has spoken to him. And Jesus said, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. I was struck this week by how full this book is with passage after passage, account after account, where God speaks and how lightly I take it. Put that little picture up of the sailboat, the little scribble. I have a friend that I went to college with. I was also in the Marine Corps with him. We were stationed in the same area in Southern California. We weren't in the same unit, but we lived close enough to each other where we spent a lot of time together. And after he left the Marine Corps, he went to law school, this friend of mine. And he's pretty driven. I'm not going to tell you this guy's name because he would never be guilty of listening to one of these sermons. So I don't know why I'm worried about it, but just, just for some reason, I just won't tell you his name. In private, I would tell you his name later, but he's still a good friend. We're going, to, we're going to his Christmas party this year. But to give you some sense of what's happened to this guy since he left the Marine Corps, at his Christmas party this year, the entertainment is Penn and Teller. And that's at his house. I mean, that's at his house. He was apparently in on the oil spill uh, suit and has since then gotten in on a number of other large lawsuits, and the guy has struck it big. I mean, he is making some crazy, 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 crazy money. He's one of Christie's Facebook friends because I'm not on Facebook, and Christie, that's kind of how I still stay up with him. And I do get on Facebook. I just don't have an account. Anyway, I got on Facebook this week, and I saw Tony's little announcement this week that he actually purchased this. Now, what's unusual about this is this was in the news this week because we're coming up on the anniversary of JFK's assassination. This doodle was done the night before in Houston, the night before his assassination, and apparently JFK was notorious for doodles. And he, you know, Cuban Missile Crisis, he's in there drawing pictures. And those pictures are very, very, very valuable. I don't know what this thing ended up going for, but my buddy bought it. He's big time into JFK memorabilia. Bought his rocking chair or something last year. I mean, weird, over-the-top sort of stuff. But I, I thought, man, that's kind of interesting. And I'm looking at his picture, and I'm, there's a little article about this doodle. And the article was, was fascinating. I felt myself so intrigued with what JFK must have been thinking the night before his assassination. And some think, well, maybe as he's doodling this, he actually was into sailing and had a sailboat. Then maybe he's thinking about the time that he's going to spend with his family only a few days later on their Thanksgiving where he may be sailing with his family and friends. I was reading this article, and here I am preparing for this sermon as well, parallel. I'm reading this article, and I realize I'm fascinated and intrigued with what JFK must have been thinking. And then I realized the extent to someone, that someone will go to to capture a moment of his thoughts. 
recorded in a doodle. And how intrigued I was just reading about a doodle. And then I realized here we have page after page after page after page, chapter and books full of what God is thinking. And I thought, man, I'm pretty intrigued with this. How really honestly am I intrigued with this? JFK, whatever you might think of JFK, he's dead. And he's not God. It struck me the availability and accessibility of this. And do I approach this like it's a treasure? Like it's far beyond a doodle. (laughs) Like it's great detail into the mind of our creator. It strikes me how easy it is to neglect this book considering that it's filled with words from our creator. Filled with thoughts from our sustainer, not just creator, but our sustainer. I was quite convicted, not necessarily because I was interested in this, but quite convicted at how lightly I take this at times. Are you intrigued with the mind of your creator? Like my friend is intrigued with the mind of John F. Kennedy the night before he died. Are you interested, captivated with what he's thinking as a living God? It's right here and it's available. And at least as far as I know right now, we don't have to worry about being murdered because of it. Right here we don't. What a treasure we have here. A book full of God's words that record his words. Now, turn to Mark chapter 4. As you're turning to Mark chapter 4, we're going to move to the second part of this message. There's something I want to develop for you that crept up on me as we were preaching through the book of John. Something that developed that really shocked me. I realized I didn't have this insight into God's word. I didn't have this appreciation for God's word up until that point. And we have a chance to revisit that this week in this message. There are a number of prophetic passages about Christ. And I've always thought those interesting. And, you know, it's kind of an old-fashioned word, but honestly, it kind of captures what I've always thought of those words. I've always, are those prophetic passages and how they are fulfilled in Christ, I've always thought them nifty. It's kind of a lame word for something really so awesome, but I'm really being really honest with you. I've always thought them kind of nifty. That something that was written hundreds, in some cases even thousands of years before Christ, is actually fulfilled in Christ. I thought, man, neato. Nifty and neato. And I don't want to undervalue those things. I'm just being really honest. That's where they've left me, nifty and neato. But here are some of them, and they're awesome, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. Awesome. That the Messiah would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. That the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49. Messiah would be called Emmanuel, Isaiah 7. The Messiah would spend a season in Egypt, Hosea 11. The massacre of children would happen at Messiah's birthplace, Jeremiah 31. A messenger would prepare the way for Messiah, Isaiah 40. Messiah would be called a Nazarene, Isaiah 11. Messiah would speak in parables, Psalm 78. 
Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. The Messiah would be called a king, Psalm 2. Messiah would be praised by little children, Psalm 8. Messiah would be betrayed, Psalm 41. Messiah's price money would be used to buy a potter's field, Zechariah 11. Messiah would be falsely accused, Psalm 35. Messiah would be silent before his accusers. Messiah would be spat upon and struck. He would be hated without a cause. He would be crucified with criminals. He would be given vinegar to drink, Psalm 69. Messiah's hand and feet would be pierced, Psalm 22. Messiah would be mocked and ridiculed, Psalm 22. Soldiers would gamble for Messiah's garments, Psalm 22. Messiah's bones would not be broken, Exodus 12 and Psalm 34. Messiah would pray for his enemies. Soldiers would pierce the Messiah's side. Messiah would be buried with the rich. Messiah would resurrect from the dead. Messiah would ascend to heaven, and Messiah would be a sacrifice for sin. When you really take it in, that's really pretty awesome. I'm going to think somebody's got to be working real hard and not believing that he's the Messiah. Passage written hundreds and hundreds, in some cases thousands of years before Christ came. In such detail that they were able to identify he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Man, the prophetic passages are really pretty awesome. And I'm confessing to you, even though I think them nifty, it's only because of where we're going here in the next few minutes. Those are nifty. What I'm going to show you in the next few minutes is awesome. I asked you to turn to Mark chapter 4. Give me a second to get there, share a story with you. Mark chapter 4. Grab another little notepad here. Beginning in verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? I'm going to share three psalms with you. You can jot them down. I'm nowhere, I have them tabbed in my Bible, so I'm going to be very quick about turning there. But I want you to listen to these psalms in light of that little story, that little account of a storm, a storm calmed. This is really where the birthplace of this sermon happened in the study of this passage in Mark chapter 4 for me this summer. Listen to these psalms that were written hundreds of years before this happened on that day in that boat. Psalm number 65, beginning in verse 5. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people. Listen to Psalm 89, beginning in verse 8. 
O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. And then the third psalm, Psalm 107, beginning in verse 28. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. There are occasions in my study, and I say study as the thing that I endeavor to do week by week. It could take place anywhere, but I also say study as a place where I'm usually studying right over in that building. There are times where I'm so overwhelmed with dots that connect that I'm left in pieces. And these sort of connections, they leave me awash, pun intended. If you parachute into Mark chapter 4 and you never read the rest of your Bible, you never engage, you never inundate yourself and saturate yourself in the rest of the story, you miss out on those beautiful dots and those beautiful connections to see that God, Jesus isn't just showing off when he calms the storm, that he's doing what God does. It takes that moment that's really pretty awesome where he's calming the waves and you're imagining the waves and the storms in your life and thinking about how he can do that, which you should take, you should enjoy, but he takes it to a whole nother level when you realize, wait a second, he's being God in that boat. He's doing what God did for Israel time and time again so that the psalmist writes songs about it. Man, that's, that's, not, that's not a prophetic passage being fulfilled, a nifty prophetic passage. That's God being God in the boat. So the seas were hushed as he's ruling the raging sea, as he stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves and the tumult of the peoples. That's what he did in that boat. He was being God. When I see the synthesis and integrity of this Bible, it is self-validating for me over and over and over again. To have been written over hundreds and thousands of years by many different authors, to see a synthesis and an integrity like that where dots connect that leave you awash, it's a miracle. This thing is like a miracle. <laughs> and we can take it so lightly. The connections that take place in this story shocking. Passage after passage that's prophetic, that's fulfilled in Christ, passage after passage that's wonderfully connected like these passages. I'll turn to Psalm 148. I want to show you something new, a new level of connection. I hope this is exciting for you to see. Psalm 148, beginning in verse 7. I'm going to give you a time to turn there because I want you to see this. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, 
stormy wind fulfilling his word. I'm going to read that again because you get, it's just such a treasure. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. What I want you to see here is realize is that we have these passages that are prophetic, that sort of foretell what's going to happen in the future. And then you have these passages that are determining this passage, these passages that I've read that were connected to Mark chapter 4, those three psalms that were connected, they seem wonderfully connected. But when you see those passages in light of Psalm 148, you realize here that they are beyond wonderfully connected. They are determining passages that God has spoken the storm into existence just like he said, peace be still. That God determined by his own word, Psalm 148, that there would be a storm that his son would speak into calmness. Effectively, God spoke the storm into existence in Psalm 65, Psalms 89, Psalm 107, and here in Psalm 148. And then God the Son speaks again in Mark chapter 4 and says, peace be still. Man, what a shocking thing we have a book that not only tells us some foretelling and shows us example after example where something's foretold and it happens, but we actually have a book full of words that are future determining. There's going to be a storm. And my son, God the son, is going to calm it. What? It's beyond foretelling. It is future determining. Now, I want to show you where it snuck up on me in John. Turn to John chapter 18. If it's a little loose for you, a little hazy, you're about to see it come together, what I'm talking about. John chapter 18. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. If you're still turning there, that's okay. The focus is verse 9, so you'll have time. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, he actually said in the original Greek, he said, I am. Which explains what happened next. They drew back and fell to the ground because God spoke. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Okay, pay attention to that. Let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. What he said here, let these men go, was to fulfill something that God had said earlier, God the Son. Two different places already he said in the book of John. In chapter 6, he said this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose any of all that he's given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. That's to fulfill that scripture. I'm not going to lose them. They're not going to be harmed. Let these men go. Here's the other one. I pray that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand from John chapter 10. 
These passages are determining that at that moment at Christ's arrest, that the rest of his followers would go free. Scripture is determining the outcome. The next one happens in the same chapter right here in verse 31 and 32. Look at this. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It's so easy to read past these passages and not really realize what's being said there, that he is fulfilling, this is the fulfillment of words that he's previously said. It's not just foretelling, it is future determining that he would be nailed to a cross because in John chapter 3 verse 14 he said this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He was determined right then and there he was going to be nailed to a cross. His word determined the outcome. And in John chapter 12, and when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The last one is in John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture. I wondered in there as I put little notes as I was preaching through that passage. I wonder if he said this because he was thirsty or if he said it to fulfill the scripture. He said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to its mouth, to his mouth. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Psalm 69 says, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Man, what I want you to see there is I want you to see those scriptures as determining what would happen. What it should do for us is is take this Bible to a whole nother level of potency and importance for us it's not just recording some old ancient stories in perfect detail perfectly accurate which it is at least that it's also not a collection of things that are gonna that that are examples of things that were foretold that actually came true with a few more things that have been foretold that haven't come true yet that we can think okay that's going to happen because this book has a bunch of foretellings in it that are all true what i want you to see even be above and beyond that is it is a book that is determining what will unfold. It is a book that is not only prophesying, but determining the future. I'm going to close with a couple of examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn there, please. And these are examples that hit close to home because this has everything to do with who we are as a church. As you're turning there, I'm going to read one passage, then we're going to look together. At 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 says this. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God that said let there be light is the same God that spoke you into existence. And I don't just mean your birth. I mean your second birth. That's what he's saying here. The same God that said let there be light 
has shown in your hearts to give you a knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done for us. He spoke your second birth into existence and spoke the Corinthian church into existence and spoke cross point fellowship into existence. Same God that said, let there be light. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now I'm going to read that again and I'm going to read it a different way. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the message that Paul has given the Corinthian church and this is the point of the message I'm giving to you this morning. God has determined and spoken us into existence and this is how he's done it right here with his word. I thought about what this message was this morning. Trying to kind of figure out what it is, a little different. We're not exposing one passage and trying to get at the context and the meaning and application of one specific passage. Really what we're looking at is a message about the messages, a message about the word. But the point of the message this morning is this is far more than a book. And it rates far more than neglect. It rates far more than just something that you go to when you have a problem. The only appropriate response to what this book is that tells us who God is and what he said and what he's done, that tells us what's in store and that determines what's in store is the only appropriate response is for us to be saturated with it, to be inundated with it, to feast on it every single day. I thought about some objections I've heard over the years One objection that I've heard over the years is, uh, well, it's really not working. It's not helping. I've heard that from folks before who are going through some sort of crisis and they've read the Bible some. Like, well, it's not helping. And really, let me me just, I don't mean to make light of that feeling. We're like, man, I still feel like I'm drowning, but it's not helping me. I want you to think about it like this. There are times where someone might go get a new pair of tennis shoes and might get a gym membership and might go work out a few times and feel like, man, I'm not lean and svelte yet. I've been working out all week. And I'm making light of something, but I want you to understand this, if it's properly to be eaten, if it's properly a- approached, if it's to become a-, a part of your life and to truly shape you and-, and refine you and equip you and define you must be engaged often. I'm going to say daily, but I'm not going to make some sort of legal requirement of that. But it's got to be approached in a daily way. It's got to become part of your diet, part of your life. To say it didn't work, I'm saying, well, it's not done. That implies that you tried something for a period of time and you haven't felt a difference. Like taking vitamins for a week and I don't feel any better. Try it for a few years. Try exercise for a few years and see how you feel. Another objection I've heard to God's word and reading and being inundated with God's word is I'm not much of a reader. I've heard that mostly from guys. I have heard it from some gals, but I've heard it mostly from guys, guys that I would say are tough guys, that kind of, you know, manly guys. 
one guy, I'm thinking in particular, I won't name his name, but he used to say that, but since then he's been devouring his book, Bible. But to say I'm not much of a reader would be like living in the Alps and not being much of a hiker. It'd be like living in South Louisiana and not being much of an eater. Cajun food central. It's just a bad excuse, and it's one that just doesn't fly. And another one I've heard is I just don't have time. And I think I don't even really need to spend any time on that because it's just a ridiculous and lame excuse. I don't have time when you've got time for TV and you've got time for every single thing else in the world. We make time for it. Because for the Christian, it's your air. For the Christian, it's got to be your food. For the Christian, we're hearing from God what God has said and what God is and what he's done. We're hearing from God what's in store. And we're hearing, too, from God what he is determining to happen. Some questions that I asked myself that I want to ask you this morning is do you really hear it and receive it like it's the truest thing you hear and see and read each week? Do you? Do you receive it like it's the truest thing you receive and hear and read each week? Or is your Bible untouched between Sundays? Do you spend more time checking Facebook than you do reading his word? And I'm not just picking on Facebookers because I'm not on Facebook or I don't have an account. I'm on it (laughs) secretly. Think about that for a minute. Do you spend more time updating people on what you're wearing or what you're eating or what you're staining or what you're doing than you do what God has done and what God is doing? Are you more interested in someone's doodle than you are on what God has done and what God is doing? Man, that's just an honest question to ask yourself. You spend more time checking Facebook than you do his word. I thought about this morning. If this morning is nothing more than you guys need to read your Bible Sunday, then it's worthwhile. Because if one of you starts reading your Bible more than you already are, it's going to be good. And you're going to find a health that you haven't found before. It's a passage that I... In Hebrews chapter 4, that's a very appropriate passage, and I, I thought this, about this being home base for us for the morning, but I think it's actually going to be where we end and where we land. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. I like these present tense sort of words like discerning and piercing and living because it implies that this thing is really alive. That when you sit alone with it, it's sort of counter awe. It's unlikely that the clouds are going to part, that you're going to hear this audible voice from God. But these ING sort of words here tell me that something's happening there, that you are being pierced. That you are being engaged by a living God through a living book, through living words, and that you are being sharpened. 
and that you are discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart through God's word. And it's discerning your thoughts and intentions. These last couple of years, I've been doing some counseling with Greg Fields. Greg Fields is a a good friend, a pastor of another church here in town, Westminster Presbyterian. And Greg is a very gifted counselor. So in some ways, what I'm doing when I'm counseling with Greg, we're kind of team counseling. But what I'm doing more than anything is learning from watching this guy counsel. But one of the things that Greg and I have talked about is this weird play that takes place in a counseling session over the course of time, over a few counseling sessions. This interplay that takes place where I realize, and I've caught myself doing this, and we've talked about this, not being a real take on what's taking place, but there's sometimes where you're in a counseling session over a period of time where you're sitting there thinking to yourself as a counselor, okay, you know what's going on now. Just go ahead and give it up and tell me what's going on, and we'll figure out what we can do and deal with it. I know you're keeping it from me, but go ahead and cough it up so we can deal with it. Let's just get it out here in the light. The funny thing is, is the person being counseled is thinking the same thing about the counselor. I do it with Greg now. Greg is so skilled. I'm sitting around with him and I'm thinking to myself, he knows all my problems. He knows what's wrong with me. But that's what takes place in the counseling session too, is the person's looking at the counselor saying, you know what's going on with me. I've told you all the data, put the data together, sort it out and diagnose me, make sense of me. I realize as I'm sitting here preparing for this sermon that in some ways is the counter awe in talking about a book that we all carry around every single day or every single week that we probably have multiple copies of on the, on the shelf that this thing is the better counselor than any counselor I've ever met in my life. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I can't determine the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What I found in counseling is when a counselor sitting in a room with the counselees everybody's clueless. (laughs) Nobody has the insight on what's going on. People aren't trying to be, you know, private. I'm not going to tell you my my hard, difficult stuff. They're as confused as you are as a counselor. And just so you know, your counselor's confused as well. All you do is you have a teammate that's trying to help you make sense of it. And the things that I've done in counseling that have taken place over months, in some cases, over a year, the Word does everything single day. God does it through the word, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is a better counselor than I will ever be. This is a better counselor, and it's a whole lot more available and a whole lot cheaper than Greg Fields. (laughs) A whole lot easier to look at. I'm joking. It was a joke. (laughs) People are like, man, I can't believe you said that. Man, I'm telling you, what a treasure we have right here. If this morning is nothing more than please read your Bible Sunday, then please read your Bible and start today. If you need some tools and some things to help you, I'll tell you right now, there are different versions out there. I would recommend highly the ESV because it's what we preach from each week. It's just kind of handy for you to follow along. I would even recommend even beyond that an ESV study Bible. I don't know of a better instrument out there for just study from day to day in your own home than the ESV study Bible. The commentary at the bottom of the page is amazing. There are some other good versions out there, and I don't want you to go trashing your Bible if it's not an ESV. Um, New American Standard is my second favorite. Very literal translation. Sometimes hard to read. Sometimes hard to get the gist of a paragraph. That's why I like the ESV. It sort of captures paragraph sort of thought, but it's still pretty literal. But then on the other end is the NIV, which is not that literal, and is very close to what I would call as a paraphrase. 
It's not there. It's still a translation, but it takes some liberties with things that sort of leave you wanting when you've really studied things closer. The NIV is notorious for leaving out henna clauses, these little phrases that say, in order that, or for the purpose of, the NIV is notorious for leaving those things out. When you've begun to connect to those things, you find those treasures. So if you have the NIV that is all marked up, and you're like, man, this is my treasure, keep treasuring it. Maybe get an ESV also. Really, multiple versions is one of the best study tools that you can have in studying in your own home, is reading multiple versions of the same passage because you're going to see little nuances and things that they do uh, between these translations that's going to bring out a point. It's amazing how simple that is for study. If you have the NAS, awesome. Grab the ESV as well. I, I think they're, they're all great versions, but I highly encourage you to get the ESV and get the ESV study, study guide Bible. And then lastly, there are tons of study or reading guides out there. Um, there's some that go chronological, you know, where you're reading over the, over the story and they'll grab excerpts from different books and different chapters to where you're actually reading the story chronologically. And then there are other passages that grab a chapter from four different places. That's what I read is a McShane Bible reading guide. And we're going to have some of those copies. I think they're out there on the table. Yeah. Some of those copies out there that are just like this. It breaks it down by day. Four different chapters usually. Not always four. Sometimes uh, in a book you might actually read a couple of chapters. But it's a total of, I would say, maybe 20 minutes a day, 30 minutes a day. That's probably more like 15. It's when you get behind. When you're like four or five days behind, you're like, golly, I need like three hours to get caught up. But they're, they're a treasure three hours, though. Just grab a cup of coffee and get a quiet spot, and you're going to have a treasure. I'm telling you, these dots that are connected, some of these dots that were connected this morning just came from my daily Bible reading. And I know they might mean a whole lot more to me because they came to me in my daily Bible reading than they actually unfolded in here. But you can have that treasure, too. Man, you can have this thing, this ING, living thing, this ongoing piercing, this ongoing discerning, this ongoing sharpening. If you but read this thing. If this is just Bible reading Sunday, then man, by all means, read. There's treasures in it. Now, we're going to have our supper. And um, a passage I'm going to read from is in Mark chapter 4, beginning in Matthew chapter 4, excuse me, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Very appropriate that we consider this passage today as we take the supper. We take the supper every single week, and in some ways, every time we do, we consider different aspects of the gospel, different, different vantage points of what God has done for us in Christ. What I want you to consider this morning as we take a meal with our God is to consider every time you pick up this book, Every time you pick up this book that people were murdered for this week in North Korea. Every time you pick up this book 
that at great cost, I mean in blood, has been translated into our language so that all of us can have a copy of it. Every time you pick it up, you are having a meal with your God. You're dining. You wonder about some of the language we use at Crosspoint. Let's dine together on God's word. That's where that comes from. So as we dine together with God because of what Christ has done, let's enjoy that we can dine together with God with this anytime and every time we want. Let's have a meal together. Supper should be like a time of saying, Lord, I ask your forgiveness for just taking really lightly and neglecting your word, what you said. That's part of mine today. If the only time I ever spend time in the Word is just so I can prepare to teach or preach, that leans in the direction of this being a J-O-B. Do you know that? And I can spend a lot of time in the Word doing that very thing and just be a J-O-B. If I don't spend time in the Word, this goes for you small group shepherds as well and shepherds of families. If I don't spend time in God's Word, just enjoying who He is, enjoying that God said something, Just enjoying his character, enjoying his attributes, then I'm not worshiping. I need to spend time enjoying him, just enjoying him for his sake. What a treasure we have in that book. Part of this time might be, Lord, forgive me for neglecting your word. As I take this meal, Lord, remind me of this meal that's ever present and ever available. This is, um, I mentioned this a couple Sundays ago, and I had an interesting, may have been, this last Sunday, may have been last Sunday, the Lord's Supper was a time of where talked about some pretty pointed things about how then should you live. You know, as we listen in on the door, what should our lives look like? Lives of moderation, not mediation, moderation. I had some, I had a very, uh, heartfelt conversation with a good friend since then. And I realized that there might be, there might be some of the things that we talked about there in regards to, we talk about, talking about food since we're about to eat a meal. I can mask that I medicate with food by doing a bunch of exercise. I can hide that from you. And I'm up here as a worshiper this morning letting you know that I usually medicate with physical food. When I'm worried about something, when I'm celebrating something, and every time in between, I medicate with food. And as I'm taking this meal right here, I'm saying, Lord, by your grace and your mercy, teach me to medicate with eternal meal and eternal food, not physical food. We all got to eat. Lord, keep me from being so dependent on something that's just supposed to be a shadow of what you are as the substance. Can we take that this morning enjoying that we have that meal ever ready, ever available, ever hearty, ever good for you? It's healthy. Let's take and eat. Let's take and drink. God, I pray. I pray that you will continue to grow us as a church, 
Grow us as families, grow us as shepherds, as individuals, as small groups, to be a people that are satisfied with this hearty meal that you have made so available to us in this age and in this very safe place to live. Lord, I pray that we not take for granted that we have the Bible so available. Lord, I pray that we not treat the Bible like it's a vitamin or like it's a workout, but that we can treat your word like it's a way of life, like it's our air. Lord, I'm thankful that you will nourish us as we do that. I'm thankful that your word is already determined that you will sharpen us through that. You've already determined that you will discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart as we just daily sit in the counter-all moment with an ordinary cup of coffee and an ordinary book in our lap knowing that we are engaging an extraordinary word. Lord, I pray for real application this morning. I pray that there might be a young man that asks his parents for a And he starts reading it because he knows he needs it and because he wants to be a man after your own heart. Lord, I pray for a young woman, too, that so easily can be caught up in what she wears and what the cool things are, that she'll be inundated and saturated with you and your story and what you foretold and what you were determining to unfold in your word, that she'll be a woman steeped in truth. Lord, I pray for men, strong men, that are like men that you have grown and shaped in this body already. Men that feel like, I don't have time for that. I'm not much of a reader. That you can quicken them to the gravity and the importance of sitting and reading. Lord, I envision strong, burly, manly men sitting with a Bible and enjoying a great God. Lord, I'm thankful in advance for what that will do to marriages. I'm thankful in advance for what that will do to home settings and environments. I'm thankful in advance for what that will do to tomorrow's church. As tomorrow's church sees that this is our food and we can't live without it. Lord, this morning we enjoy the most important meal as we consider your word. We enjoy the word that became flesh that dwelt among us, whose body was broken for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.